Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. Father, we thank you so much. Thank you so much for your people. You call us a body. We're helpers of one another. And Lord, we pray for, for those who may have condemnation hovering over them, Lord. Maybe the enemy's beating them up. Maybe they've had an abortion in the past. You know, Lord, but in Christ, they're, they're a new cre- creature, new creation. And the old things have passed away and all things have become new. And so we thank you for that, Lord. So I pray that you would comfort them, Lord. And, and Lord, we do pray over the prayer walk this Saturday. We pray that, that, Father, you would empower your people, that you would help us, Lord, to be as wise as serpents, but as harmless as doves, that you keep us safe, Lord, that you would change minds, that you would save babies, save mothers, save uh, fathers, Lord, from making poor decisions. And Father, we lift up tonight. We pray that your word will go forth and that your word will accomplish whatever purpose you have for it. I pray that you help us to be more like Jesus. Lord, however we came into the building, I pray that we'll leave here differently. We'll leave here more equipped. We'll leave here more encouraged. We'll leave here, Lord, without those burdens that we brought in tonight. Now just pray just for a mighty movement of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we know you're here, Lord. Help us to sense your presence. And, and I do pray for the gift of teaching, for that ability to rightly divide your word of truth. And so at this time, Lord, my desire is to decrease and to see you increase and be glorified during this service. And not just in this building, but all across this campus. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, so tonight we're going to cover... Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, and as usual, we have a title for the lessons or the messages, and the title of tonight's message is Unashamed Worship, Unashamed Worship. And as many of you think of that term worship, I can almost guarantee that, that, that many thoughts are flooding your minds. You can imagine people bowing and people singing. You can imagine people praying as I bring up that word worship and you start thinking about it. And there's other things that come to mind in regard to worship that are not as normal. Well, some of you may have come across things where, where people are so-called barking in the spirit, handling snakes, running around like it's a track meet going on in the church. You've probably seen these things. You've probably seen people screaming uncontrollably. Even while the, the teacher of the word is teaching. And the thing about that is God will never interrupt himself. For he is not the author of confusion. So if the Holy Spirit is, is using the, the pastor or whoever's teaching the word, if he's using them to get his message across, he's not going to uh, interrupt himself by having somebody just 
loudly speaking in tongues, for example, just, just interrupting the service, interrupting the message. And so some of those things maybe come to your mind, flood your minds as you, you think about worship. And although some of those things I mentioned are indeed out of order, just want to share with you that the main emphasis of this study is, is not to provide a list of appropriate ways or inappropriate ways to worship, although, of course, we'll touch on some of those things. But, but our main focus will be more on dealing with our attitude or our hearts when we do worship. And so that, that's what we want to emphasize tonight. And so before we get there, we, we do want to start on our journey. And of course, I'm, I'm using journey metaphorically as we talk about getting into the study tonight. So as we start on our journey, we want to begin with, with verse 1 in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And there it says, again, David gathered all the choice men, or he, he gathered these elite troops together. And, of course, these are troops of the nation of Israel. And there were 30,000, according to verse 1. And David arose and he went with all the people who were with him from Beali, Judah, which is another name for Kiriath-Jerim. Or you may see in the New King James Version or the King James Version, you may see Kirjath-Jerim. So if I say Kirjath-Jerim or Kiriath-Jerim, it's the same place as Beali Judah. And so he went there to bring up from there to Jerusalem the ark of God, whose name is called by the name the Lord of hosts, or, or Yahweh, as some believe it is pronounced, of hosts. The Lord of heaven's armies is what it means. And notice it says that he dwells between the cherubim, which means that he is enthroned above the cherubim, which are angelic beings. And so, of course, in bringing up the ark of God in verse 2 of 2 Samuel 6, we have to talk a little bit about the ark of God, which we did, of course, in some previous studies. But this is just a refresher for many of you, maybe new to some. But the Ark of God was really a sacred box or a chest, which, of course, was made of wood and it was overlaid with gold. And within the Ark of God, this sacred chest, there was this golden pot of manna. There was Aaron's rod that budded. And then there was, of course, the law of God on the two tables of stone that he gave to Moses. And so after defeating the, the Israelites and capturing the ark of God or the ark of the Lord, the Philistines, they, they brought this ark to one of their cities called Ashdod. Then they took it to Gath and then they took it to another one of their cities called Ekron. And so the ark of God, the ark of the covenant, in other words, was in Philistines territory for seven months. And the Philistines, once again, are the enemies of the nation of Israel. But it was there for seven months. But as the story goes, uh, the Lord has struck the, the, the people of those various Philistine cities. We, he struck them with tumors 
And so they sent the, the, the ark to Israel's territory in a place called Beth Shemesh. But God would go on to also uh, strike those men in Beth Shemesh because it says that they look into the ark of God. And afterwards, the scriptures tell us that they sent messengers to those who lived in Kiriath Jerim or Kirjath Jerim in order to tell them to come get this ark. Come get it. We've, we've suffering. We, we're suffering because of this ark. And so that ark will remain in Kiriath Jerim, which is the place now. And we do have a map of that. But Kiriath-Jerim is a city that's on the northern boundary of Judah. And it's also on the western and southern boundaries of Benjamin. And we're talking about the, the, the tribe of Benjamin. And so it's right there on the border. And so it will remain in Beali Judah or in Kiriath-Jerim until David would bring the ark to Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem would not only be the political capital, but it would also become the religious capital. And so that's what we're going to see in this study today. But one thing about this ark, this ark of the covenant or this ark of God, was that it had on top of it a mercy seat. And the mercy seat was made of pure gold. And so the mercy seat really was a, a lid. And on the lid was those, those cherubim, those, those two angelic beings on it. And their wings were outstretched towards each other. And as their wings were outstretched towards each other, their face was looking down upon the lid. So this is the mercy seat. And God the scriptures tell us he spoke from this place during that time. He spoke from this mercy seat. And so that's why it tells us in verse two that, that God dwells between the cherubim because it was between there that he spoke, uh, for example, to Moses. And so this mercy seat was, was like a picture of God's throne on earth. And this mercy seat, in fact, the entire ark was, was so sacred that only the high priest was allowed to go before it once a year. And so at that time, the tabernacle was set up. So the temple was not up yet. That, that's the more permanent structure. Solomon will be the one to, to build the first one, and that's David's son. But here, there was just a tent. But during Moses' time, there was a tabernacle. And in, in the first room, it was called the holy place. And so that's where you had the table of showbread, the candles, and the altar of incense. And then the, 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 the farthest room, you had the most holy place. And so in the most holy place, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was, with, that had the mercy seat upon it, where God would meet with the priests. He met with Moses. He spoke from there. Once again, a picture of his throne on earth. But only once a year, the high priest was allowed to go in the most holy place and he would sprinkle the blood of a bull 
for himself and for his family. And, and he will sprinkle the blood of the goat for Israel upon the mercy seat once a year. And that was on the Day of Atonement. And that, of course, was to make atonement for the sins of the people and for himself. But it was so sacred, he, would only, he was only allowed to go in there once a year. Nobody else was allowed to go in there to that most holy place and to go before the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat there. But, but praise God that, that we could approach this God who dwells above the cherubim. We can approach him now. Because the scriptures tell us that when Jesus was crucified and he gave up that final breath, it tells us that the veil to the temple was ripped from top to bottom. And so now all of us, we have access to God the Father. And of course, that is through none other than Jesus Christ. And so, yes, we could approach that throne of God. And this is what it reminds me of when, when I read Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. It says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may what? Obtain mercy. So is there anybody who needs mercy? I believe all of us do. We've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We, we need mercy. I'd rather have mercy than justice. Because justice means that we get what we really deserve. That is, that is death, eternal death in a place called hell. It's an eternal place of punishment. But no, we want to obtain mercy. We want to uh, obtain the, the compassion of God. We do not want what we really deserve. We need to, to come boldly to this throne of grace. We don't need to be timid. We don't need a human high priest to go before us. But we could approach it boldly. We could approach it boldly through prayer. We could approach it boldly through Jesus because Jesus did the work and he made a way for us. And not only can we obtain mercy, but we can find grace to help us in our time of need. Is there anybody who needs grace? You need God, you need God undeserved, unmerited favor. I need grace to, to help me in everything that I do, to be all that he wants me to be. Or if there's a task that God wants you to accomplish, you need his enabling grace. But back in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 3, it says, So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, they, they drove or they guided the new cart. So it was in Abinadab's house for all these years in Kiriath-Jerim. And so now David and his crew, they're going to get the ark of God, bring it to Jerusalem. And they brought it out of the house of, of Abinadab in verse 4, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before them. And then David and all the house of Israel, they played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments, of firwood, on harps, on string instruments. In other words, on lyres and harps. There was music played via the tambourines and on sistrums, which are kind of like castanets or rattles, some translations say. 
and, of course, on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God, and he took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And so this threshing, their threshing floor was a place where the grain, of course, was, was separated from the chaff. So it was, a, it was a hard floor. It was jam-packed. So they came to that place, to Nacon's, or in First Chronicles, it calls them Kaidon. But it was his threshing floor. And like I said, it caused things to wobble a little bit. And so Uzzah, playing the hero, he put his hand out to stop it, to stop the ark from potentially falling. Then the anger, in verse 7 of the Lord, it says, was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error. Some translations say for his irreverence, because that's basically what it was. He was irreverent in the way he dealt with it. And and he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry. He became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. And and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah, which means outburst against Uzzah until this day. And so there was a method a certain way that the ark first of all was supposed to be carried or handled this first of all it wasn't supposed to be put on carts the philistines did that but the ark of course was to be carried by a, a, a certain group of people in a certain tribe and so it, it could only be carried by those who are of the tribe of judah in the lineage, of course, of Kohath. And so only the Kohathites, who were of the tribe of, not Judah, of the tribe of Levi, only they can carry it. Those of the tribe of Levi. And so God is very particular about how he wants things to be done and who should do it. Kohathites of the tribe of Levi. And so to do something different from the way God prescribed it, from what God wants, that was irreverent. But not only that, to touch the Ark of the Covenant was irreverent. It was disrespectful to God. In fact, this is what it says in Numbers chapter 4, verse 15. And what we're going to read is what the Lord had told Moses and Aaron as he was giving them instructions. He said to them, and, and when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set to go, so when they folded up the tabernacle, when they covered all of um, the, you know, the, the table of, of showbread, the lamp, when they covered things like that, And when the camp is set to go, it says, then the sons of Kohath, remember, they were the tribe of Levi. They shall come and carry them. They shall come and carry them. So they had to be of a certain family of that particular tribe. But notice this, that even the the, the people of Kohath, of the tribe of Levi, even them, they were not supposed to touch any holy thing, lest what? Lest they die. And so God had established that early on. And so now you have Uzzah who touched it. And so unfortunately, he learned that the hard way. But in verse 9, it says, David, he saw that 
he experienced, experienced that. He saw what happened to Uzzah. And, and David, not only was he angry, but now it says, now he became afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me or how can it come into my care? Remember, it was Jerusalem was the political center at that time. David had defeated Jerusalem. It's under uh, the Israelites now. It's under Israel. It's the capital of Israel now. But now he wanted to make it the religious center. And so the ark needed to be there because we, remember we talked about the day of atonement and so forth. So the ark needed to be there. And so David, being afraid of the Lord, he, he would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David. But David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, who was a man from Gath. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household or his family. And so, so here, not, not only does that, that, that mercy seat, provide a picture of the throne of God, an earthly picture of the throne of God, but the ark itself. Just want to share this with you. It, it represented the, the presence of God. And so as long as they had the ark of the covenant or the ark of the Lord, it represented the Lord's presence with them. And, and so if you read it that way in verse 11, how, how the house of Obed-Edom and Obed-Edom, how it was blessed because the Ark of the Covenant was there. It was, he was blessed. His family was blessed. Everything he had was blessed because of the Lord's presence was there because it represented the Lord's presence. And I just wonder tonight, do we experience God's presence Oh, we know that he is present because we, we, we've heard teachings that God is omnipresent. We, we see verses in the Bible that God is omnipresent, that he's present everywhere at the same time. But the question is, do you experience his presence? Are you sensitive to his presence? It's two different things. It's, it's one thing for my wife to be in the same house. I'm in the family room. She's in the closet. <laughs> I didn't even think that through, but she does love the closet. <laughs> so it's one thing that my wife is in the house with me, but it's another thing for me to experience her presence. We're sitting down eating together. We're sitting down watching a movie together. It's two different things. So same thing with the Lord. It's one thing to, to know that he's omnipresent. Lord, I know that you're everywhere at the same time. So I don't have to ask you to be here. You're here. But what I ask, Lord, is to experience your presence. And so do we experience his presence? And do we long to experience his presence? Not just knowing that he's there. Because we will be blessed by God's manifest presence. And what I mean by his manifest presence is that his presence being obvious to the eye or mind. For, for example, the burning bush that Moses saw was an example of God's manifest presence. That doesn't, that's not literally how God looks, but it was a revelation that God is there. The, the splitting of the Red Sea. No, you may not have been looking at God face to face or the 
Israelites may not have been looking at God face to face, but they were experiencing his presence because they saw God at work right there and then. And so when you experience God's manifest presence, you sense that he's here working right here and right now. Or you sense that he's speaking directly to you as as you're reading a portion of scripture and you're like, wow, that is exactly for me. I, I was just came to mind. I thought of this earlier today and I didn't, I wasn't sure if I was going to share it, but I'll go ahead and share it because it was brought up again to my attention. But an example of me sensing his manifest presence or not just knowing that he's there, he's omnipresent, but me experiencing him. I remember right before I was um, diagnosed with MS, I was, um, you know, I was going to the doctor and so forth. I was trying to figure out what was going on. I was praying that it it was something else, but I I kept seeing some scriptures. The same scripture would would come up, whether it was in the Bible or I would see it on the wall or I'll be in somebody's house, walk past something, and I I see it. And and the same scripture kept kept coming up before the diagnosis, and, and the scripture was just over and over, be strong and courageous. I kept seeing that. And then walking in the education building, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here full time, so I'm here in the office. I'm walking towards the back. Never seen the poster before. Walk right past the poster. Just happened to look to the left. There's a poster there right before the workroom. Once again, be strong and courageous. You know, that to me is an example of me experiencing God, not just knowing that he's here, but me knowing that he's speaking directly to me. An example of his manifest presence. And maybe some of you have sensed that you sense this overwhelming peace. You, You sense this overwhelming joy. You sense the warmth of his love. Oh, that's the manifest presence of God. When God is moving in such a way that you know without a shadow of a doubt that, oh, God is, is ready to work right now. He's ready to heal right now. I can sense it. Oh, that's the example, an example of his manifest presence. And so when I talk about experiencing God, that's what I'm talking about, just, just being sensitive to him, knowing that he's right here, right now, ready to move. In verse 12, it says, now it was told King David saying, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. And so David went and he brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod, which was a holy linen vest. And so David in verse 15, and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of God with shouting and with the sound of a trumpet, which was a ram's horn, or it was a shofar. And so David here, he he got over being upset. He got over being afraid because of what happened to Uzzah. Instead, what he he focused on is that the Lord is still in the blessing business. 
Oh, I saw him break out against Uzzah for making that mistake, for being irreverent. I didn't quite understand it. And I'm speaking through the mind of or through the eyes of David here, of King David here. Maybe he's saying, I I, I don't understand it. Lord, why did you do that? He was just trying to help. So he went from that. He went to being fearful. Now he's like, wow, okay, let's go and get this. Obed's Edom, he's being blessed. His household's being blessed. Everything he has is being blessed. Oh, God, you know what? He's still in the blessing business. And so it says that he brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David. With Now he is experiencing gladness. He's willing to give God another try. Willing to give, bringing up the ark, in other words, to Jerusalem, another shot. He did it with gladness. And this time, guess what? They transported uh, the ark of God in the right way. As we look at those previous verses. See, in 1 Chronicles 15 and 2, it says... Then David said, no one may carry the ark of God but the Levites. So he must have did some research. He must have done some research and found this out. No one may carry the ark of God but the Levites. For the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister before him forever. Once again, that's First Chronicles 15 too. He understood that. Now they did it the right way. And then in First Chronicles 15 and 15, it says, And the children of the Levites, they bore the ark of God on their shoulders by its poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. They did it the right way this time. David did his research. But I want to get back to the point that David gave bringing the ark from Kiriath-Jerim to Jerusalem. He gave that another try. I want to go back to that point. Because remember, he gave it another try because he saw how the household of Obed-Edom was blessed. And I want to park right there because hopefully other people will see God working in our lives. Hopefully other people will see how God is blessing us and how he's blessing our situations. And hopefully that will cause them to want to experience them in their city to want to experience them in their neighborhood, in their families, and in their lives personally. Oh, I see that you are going through some tough times, but somehow, some way, you are still saying you're blessed and you mean it. Well, I want to experience the presence of God the way you do. Or maybe some of you have tried to experience God earlier, but you were turned off. Similarly to how David was kind of afraid and, and, and how he was angry when he tried to bring the ark, which represents of the, the, the presence of the Lord to Jerusalem, turned off a bit. Let it sit in the house of Obed-Edom for three months. I, I don't want to even mess with it right now. So maybe you have been there. You wanted God. They told you about Jesus, how he died for you. And at one point, emotionally, You wanted to give Jesus a try, but then something put you off. Something turned you off. Maybe you went to church and somebody treated you poorly. 
Or maybe you read something in the Bible, you just didn't understand it and just wondering, how could God allow that? How can God do that? And, and so I would encourage you to be like David and give God another try. To give the presence of God, in other words, in your life, another try. In verse 16, back in 2 Samuel 6, it says, Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord. He was dancing before the Lord. And she despised or hated him in her heart. And so they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. So it's a tent. Then David offered burnt offerings, which... Burnt offering speaks of consecration. And he also offered peace offerings, which speaks of fellowship. And when David, in verse 18, had finished offering burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of heaven's armies. Then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both women and the men, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, which could be translated a a cake of dates and a cake or cluster of raisins. And so all the people departed, everyone to his house. Then David returned to bless his household and Michal, the daughter of Saul, this is his wife, came out to meet David after he was worshiping and dancing and twirling all around. And this is what she said after the spiritually high moment. After he comes home, how glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids or servant girls of his servants. As one of the base or vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. She's being sarcastic. And so David, just to touch on this, he uncovered himself in the sense that he removed his outer garments or his royal robes. He wasn't totally naked as he was dancing here. As his wife may have suggested, if somebody reads those words. But in 1 Chronicles 15, 27, you'll you'll see that David was in fact actually dressed like the Levites who were carrying the ark. He was dressed like the singers and the music leader because it says that he wore a linen ephod. And in verses 21 through 23, says, so David said to her, here's his response. He didn't say, shut up, woman. <laughs> he said, he said this, it was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father in all his house to appoint me ruler of the people of the Lord over Israel. He says, therefore, I will play music before the Lord. And I will be even more undignified than this. So he said, you know what? I'm going to look. You think, thought I looked foolish? I'm, I'm going to look even more foolish than this. Or I will lose even more honor. Or get this. I would act more shamelessly than this. And I will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants, those women that you're concerned about looking at me as I dance, as I worship my God, of whom you have spoken to them, I will be held in honor. Therefore, Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. 
And that's crucial because for women to not be able to have children during that time in that culture, it was, a, it was a shameful thing for a woman. And this, of course, speak this meaning her not having children was most likely or probably a result of David not having any more marital relations with her. And so David was totally disgusted with her. They were just not seeing things eye to eye spiritually. But, but David's expression of worship through dance, just to be clear, it was, it was heartfelt. It was heartfelt, sincere worship. And of course, I like this word, it was shameless. Because remember the title of the message was or is unashamed worship. And so his worship to the God of the Bible was unashamed worship. And and there is a couple of definitions of worship I want to share with you. And one definition is to honor or show reverence, which is respect. To show honor or show reverence for as a divine being or supernatural power. But there's another definition that I found in this Baker Compact Dictionary of Theological Terms. And so this other definition is more extensive. It says it's, a, it's an act of acknowledging and acclaiming the majestic greatness of God in ways he prescribes. It says through daily expressions of praise and thanksgiving by individual believers constitute worship. It says Christians gather regularly for a service of worship like we're doing today. And it says that this corporate act, what we're doing right now, consists in ascribing honor to God through praise of his nature and mighty works by singing, by praying, by reading, by preaching, by hearing the word of God with, of course, responses of obedience and faithfulness to covenantal responsibilities. And also included within worship is the administration of the new covenant ordinances like water baptism and the Lord's Supper. These things we do to honor God are are, our acts of worship. They're all a part of worship. And there are some guidelines for worship that I do want to share with you. And and I want to pull up first John chapter 4 verses uh, 23 and 24. And in these verses, you see that Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well. And as he speaks to her or have spoken to her, he said this, he says, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for the father is seeking such to worship him and God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, remember, we're talking about some guidelines for worship. And Jesus here makes it plain. And so I want to start with one point, the first point from these verses in John 4, verses 23 and 24. And so since God's nature is spirit or spiritual, we must worship him in spirit. That's the first guideline of worship I want to share. 
And so there is no focus on location like this Samaritan woman tried to bring out in John chapter 4. There's no specific location you need to go to to worship. There's no particular direction you need to face. In fact, there is no body posture that you need to have when you worship. See, we must worship him in spirit. Our worship must go beyond the surface, in other words. It must go beyond what we do on the outside. Must go beyond how we use our bodies. It's not just outward. Now, I do want to say this. We first must be spiritually alive. That means we must be born again because without being born again, we're spiritually dead. We're separated from the life of God, which is eternal life. We're separated from that without putting our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. And so we need to be born again. We need, in other words, a new nature. Because all we have before Jesus is the nature that comes from Adam. And we have a sin nature. We're spiritually dead. No spiritual life. If we die in that state, then we'll be eternally dead, separated from him forever in hell. We need to be born again first. Our spirit needs to come alive. That must happen if we're going to worship him in spirit. For God's, his nature is spiritual. But also something you see in those two verses in John 4 is that our worship of God must be done in truth. In other words, one way of seeing this is that it must be sincere and not in pretense. But also... Our worship must be based on, on God's prescribed way. And we find his prescribed way to worship him correctly. You find that in his word. And this is what King David had found out. He had gathered Zadok and Abiathar the priests, some Levite leaders together in 1 Chronicles 15. And I'm going to read verse 13 to you. But he found this out after that first mistake when Uzzah got killed. He said to the priests and to the Levite leaders, he says, For because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order. Go to the word of God. Worship him in spirit and in what? In truth, based upon his word. And, of course, we do it sincerely. And so we got those first two points as, as, as we talk about a few guidelines for worship. But I want to share, share a third point with you. And that third point is that the main way to worship God is by presenting our bodies a living sacrifice. As it tells us in Romans 12.1, says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice. So we're not dead. We're living. Holy. Acceptable to God. Which is your reasonable service. And the New Living Translation. And some other translations. Translates this this way. This is truly the way to worship him. So as we present our bodies to him. Our whole being to him. As a living sacrifice. What we're saying is Lord. I want. None of me and all of you. What we're saying is, it's not about me anymore. It's God all about you. 
And this life that you have given to me physically by giving me the breath of life, Lord, I owe it all to you. All that I have, Lord, and all that I am, Lord, I owe it all to you. And therefore, I'm going to live for you. I'm going to live to honor you. I'm going to live to give you glory. And all that you do, the scriptures teach us, we, we do it for the honor of God. And so as we live for the Lord, we, we are supposed to honor him. And in honoring him, that is worship. We worship him through our lifestyles, not just by singing. That's one way. Not just by playing music. That's another way. Not just by bowing. That is a way to worship him. Not just by lifting up of our, of our hands, but that is is a way to worship him, not just by saying thank you, Lord, giving, giving him thanks, or not just by praying. That is worship, appropriate ways to worship. Oh, yes, it is. And reading the scriptures, getting up in the morning, reading the scriptures at night, coming to a service, whether it's small group or Wednesday night service or, or Sunday morning service, when, whenever you worship him, which should be every day. That is honoring him. That is giving him glory. And and when we live for him unselfishly, that is presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. And this is truly the way to worship him. And so worship is not something we should be doing every once in a while, only when we gather. But worship should be a lifestyle as we present our bodies to him, a living sacrifice. And as we worship him, there is, and I'm talking about true worship, as we truly worship him, there is an attitude that is being displayed that David touched on in verse 22. And as he told his wife that I will be more undignified than this and I will be humble in my own sight, we we see a certain attitude that is being displayed in true worship. And the attitude that is being displayed in true worship is humility. Because when we worship him, we are elevating him. We are promoting God and and we become smaller in our own sight. We become small. He becomes even bigger. You see, David was dressed like everyone else. He didn't have on his royal robe. He took off his royal robe and he, and he had on the same garments that the, that the Levites and the priests had on. He had on the linen ephod. He looked just like a regular human being. You see, when we worship God, when we truly worship him and we become small in our own sight, we worship him with the attitude of humility. You see, it doesn't, it doesn't matter how many degrees I have. It, it doesn't matter if you're a CEO of a big company. It, it doesn't matter how many McDonald's chains you own or Subway restaurants you own. It doesn't matter what position you hold in your office. It, it doesn't even matter what position you hold in the church when there is true worship involved. Oh, you become smaller. You, you're just like everyone else. You're, you're, you're a human. You're made a little lower than the angels. And God becomes bigger. He, he, he's, he's elevated to his rightful place. And so I would encourage you, brothers and sisters in Christ, to take a page from David, not just in his humility, but, but in worshiping him with all of your might, worship him enthusiastically, worship him with, with, all of your, with all of your strength. 
worship him sincerely despite the hate you'll get. Oh, David did that. Because sometimes you're going to get hate from people you don't expect it from. He got hate from his wife as he worshiped the Lord unashamedly. He was unashamed. He got, still, he got hate from his wife. You might get hate from another family member. You may get hate from an associate you've known a long time, from a friend. You may even get hurt or, or hate from even church folks. Worship the Lord despite the hate you'll get. Because people don't know him. Not everybody know him the way you do as a believer, as a Christian. We pray that they will. They don't know him like it. They don't know what he has done for you. But we pray that they will. To worship him unashamedly. We must be okay by being more undignified or foolish in their sight. If that's the way the world wants to see us. And we have this final scripture here in 1 Peter 4, 14. It says that if you are reproached, if you're insulted, in other words, for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. So as you lift your hands, as you sing those songs, as you play worship music in your house and in your car, and people are riding in your car and they're wondering, why are you playing this music? Keep playing that music. Keep singing along to those worship songs. Keep praying in your households. Keep praying at appropriate times while, while you're at work. Keep going for those prayer walks while you're at work. I remember we had a trail on my job site. I would walk and pray, sometimes walk and read. Didn't bump into anything, praise God, but I would walk and read. Keep on doing that. People may think you're crazy, but keep worshiping him unashamedly, even in your lifestyle, because your lifestyle that you live for his glory, that is worship. So continue to worship and honor him unashamedly in all of your ways and in all of your days. Father, we thank you for allowing us to be here. Thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your unconditional love. You're worthy to be praised. You're worthy of our worship. It's all about you, Lord. And I just love the words of that song. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you. That's the heart of worship. It's all about God, not us. Not about us being seen. Not about us always hearing our favorite song played by the worship team. But it's all about magnifying the Lord. It's all about giving him the honor that is due to his name. And help us, Lord, to worship you unashamedly as we live our lives for your glory. And bless my brothers and sisters tonight, Lord, as they travel back home, Lord. Use them for your glory this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, 
would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church and how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.